it, it's beautiful. And that's honestly a statement of where the football program is at because that's right there at the Liberty Bowl. The stadium is right there. You've got neighborhoods all around. It's where the old fairgrounds were. You've got the Coliseum, unfortunately, rotting over there. That's a whole other story for another day. But Tigerland was where I would have liked it to be just because it's more of a statement to the football program. But there's obviously a lot of logistics as far as the tailgates and such. And then College Game Day, they want to be on Beale Street. Because Beale Street's kind of the more you know glamorous. You've got all the signs, pretty neon signs out there on the street. It's historic. They've got the bars. Um, I don't know. Just just for me, that I don't know. That's not where I would have wanted it. I would have wanted it as a as a testament to the football program. I think would have been better placed at Tiger Lane. But understand the logistics there because a lot of people have already they've already acquired their um, their tailgate spots. There's already contractual agreements there. And so, I understand why they put it on Beale Street. Now, Beale Street is, is its own logistical nightmare just because of all the streets you have to close off, but at least they're used to doing that. They're used to doing that for Grizzlies games, for Memphis Tiger basketball games. So, they have already have an idea of kind of how that area works as far as closing off streets and keeping everybody safe. So, that's probably why they ended up choosing that path, just because it's going to be a little more, they're used to, they're used to dealing with that area more than trying to if, – if you're trying to get out of the Liberty Bowl, it's impossible on Saturdays after games. So I think Beale Street, um, I think I understand why they chose that. And plus, it's it's more of a, a photogenic area for college game day to set up their stage and their cameras. So I kind of – I want to I go back in time to where this the, the Memphis Tiger football program was in des- absolute destitution. And I'm going to have an article that's going to come out here in the next couple of days kind of giving a more detailed um, a more detailed story of how bad the football program was to the point where they were thinking about just just do away with it. I mean, Tommy West had had the quote in 2009 when he got fired after going 2 and 10 in his final season where he he essentially said that put something into it or do away with it. They they the RC Johnson a lot of people Felt like he wasn't doing enough for the football program. They were putting a lot into the basketball program because it was, it was successful. John Calipari was doing uh, a good job until you know he left. You know, got got out of there before uh, you know everything came down on the university. So the football program was kind of like the was the little brother of the university, and the basketball program was the big brother that was going to Final Fours to national championships. Uh, losing to Mario Chalmers, you know, shots. So the football program was the little brother. They went. They had a combined five and thirty-one record over a three-year span from Tommy West's final year to the two years of Larry Porter. I don't even want to talk about the Larry Porter years because they were so bad. They had he had a combined three three wins, which I get. It's a challenging situation for anybody at that point, but man. Three wins in two seasons. Um, that's where the UConn program is at. Where UConn is now deciding that we don't even want to be a part of of a conference anymore because we can't even play, we can't even compete with any of these teams in the conference because we're that bad. That's where Memphis was in 2012 after two years of Larry Porter. So they moved on from R.C. Johnson because the football program was just obsolete at this point 
So they move on to Tom Bowen. R.C. Johnson retires. He wasn't fired. He retires. So they move on to Tom Bowen. And, you know, Tom Bowen has just recently stepped down as well. But just in his time period that that he kind of he headed upon the the committee that ended up deciding that Justin Fuente was going to be the guy to change the culture at, in Memphis football. He was a part of that. And say what you want, but the football program had a complete 180. It took it took two years to get to that point where it was a full 180, but the football program did a full 180 from going 2-10 and 10 to doubling the win total the next year. They went 3-9 and nine the year after when they when Paxton Lynch was getting his feet wet. But then, then they went 10-3 and three and won the Miami Beach Bowl. They won a bowl game in three seasons after going 2-10. and 10. That is a complete accomplishment. And what they've done from that point is a testament to what the university has put into the football program and finally getting to the realization that the football program gives the university publicity and exposure that it probably won't it wouldn't normally get just think about what just think about how the university of alabama i would i would guarantee you that the majority of people that have heard of the university of alabama know it because they have had one of the most dominant football programs in the past decade or so and just even historically speaking people just think about UMBC in the basketball tournament in, in March Madness. Nobody, nobody, I bet you less than 5% of the population would have known what University of Maryland, Baltimore County was before they beat Virginia in the NCAA tournament. That's what sports and sports programs can do for you. And Tom Bowen and the people around him understood that. And so while the basketball program was kind of in between – Josh Pastor was barely getting barely getting the team to win NCAA tournament games. They put money into the football program. And simply football is America's game. That's that's inarguable. It's the most popular sport in America. So if you can get a football team out there that's going to be competitive at the highest levels, that's going to do so much more to the university than even what you might think the intentions of it are just to have, oh, we're going to have a good football team. No, it does so much more than that. And that's where College Game Day comes in, where you have national primetime audiences watching your team and watching a TV show that garners millions of viewers every single weekend from 10 a.m. Eastern time to 12 a.m. Eastern time, or 12 p.m., excuse me, garners millions of viewers to feature your program, your university, your city, wherever your your university is at, that is millions upon millions of TV eyes that are watching a showcase of what is good about your university, your city. That is so much more important than anything that happens on a football field. And that's what having a football program that is in the right place at the right time can do for you. It is still 
unbelievable that the University of Memphis football team is where it's at today from the, from the fact that the depths it was in not, not too long ago, not even a decade ago, and Justin Fuente's first game as head coach, the University of Memphis lost to UT Martin, an FCS program that they had paid to play in the Liberty Bowl. They lost to that team. That's how bad University of Memphis football was not too long ago. And now here they are. They're getting featured on college game day. They're going to have the primetime football game at 6.30 p.m. The amount of eyes that are going to be on the University of Memphis just from a football program actually having funding and support and having competent football coaches and an administration that understands how important a football program is to not just what happens on the football field, what that can do positively for the community, for the city, and for the university. It is an absolute testament to how much better of a place the Memphis sports scene is right now. And I will get to the Memphis Grizzlies at some point because that's a whole other story. And there was, there was a lot that had to go into this. Now, the Memphis Tigers almost blew it. SMU, of course, plays a huge part in this because they're 8-0, and they're on their own, own party bus right now from being the death penalty, not even being allowed to have a football program in 1987, and then not choosing not to play in 1988. So now they're 8-0 in the top 25 for the first time in who knows how long. SMU plays a huge part in this, that's for sure. But Memphis almost blew it on Saturday. They were they were down in the fourth quarter to Tulsa. It took a miracle for the, for the Memphis Tigers to win against Tulsa. So I'll, I'm going to pull up the game and just give you the kind of the play-by-play of what happened against Tulsa that almost... It, they may have still came for game day, but honestly, if they had, if Memphis had lost a two and five Tulsa, I, I don't know if they would have really chosen to deal with the logistical headaches at that point. Because <laughs> I, I don't, you know, if they would have lost that game, heads. Ooh. Man, that would have been rough for a lot of people. And it took an absolute miracle for Memphis to win. So, with 5.14 left to go in the fourth quarter, Jacob Brainy, the Tulsa kicker, made a 26-yard field goal. Tulsa now led by 6, 41-35. So Memphis... Had to score a touchdown. They drove down the field in f- four plays because of a Brady White being able to throw a deep ball when this is a quarterback that normally is not able to do that. Being able to hit DeMonte Coxey for a 59-yard bomb down the field where DeMonte Coxey best just barely didn't score on that play. And then Kenny, Kenny Gainwell ran in for a one-yard TD. So now Memphis led 42-41. to One problem is they left some time on the clock. 
They left 426 to be exact. That's a lot of time for Tulsa just to get a field goal. So Tulsa had been running the ball all over the Memphis defense. That that was a soft performance by the Memphis defense for whatever reason. I don't, you know, I don't know what not going to say it, not going to denigrate them too much. The Memphis defense has been pretty good this year and they play hard. But Tulsa was able to run the ball over them the whole game. So they run down the field and they start calling Memphis is trying to call their timeouts. You can see Mike Norvell was frustrated on the sideline with the referees because he was trying to get the timing right to where that maybe Memphis would have a little bit of time left at the end of the game because Tulsa had driven down all the way to the Memphis 12-yard line. They were at the 12-yard line, and they had a 29-yard field goal to win the game. I'm going to play the audio for you of the call on, that, on the kick, and uh, you'll understand. Tulsa has another heartbreak on homecoming. He's hooked the first one he missed. He hooked that one. That's why I felt like he needed to be on the left hash. Kickers like it more in the left hash. I feel bad for the kicker there. I feel really bad. But man, oh man, did Memphis deserve that missed kick? After what happened against Temple, where they reversed the call on the field with replay evidence that we can't even see because it was apparently a part of the, you know, the whole NFL thing as far as Temple Stadium at Lincoln Financial Field, part of their replay system from the stadium. We want to talk about home field advantage at, in that case. After Memphis essentially lost on that, on that reverse call. They deserve the missed field goal that Jacob Brainy missed. Now, Jacob Brainy is the same kicker that against SMU also missed a kick for Tulsa to win the game that allowed SMU to continue playing in the next overtime. I feel terrible for that kid because that's rough. Tulsa was this, this close to being the two best teams in the AAC West and maybe in the AAC completely. This close, Tulsa was this close. Tulsa has played a lot of teams close this year. And you can't, you can't, blame, can't blame Tulsa's coaching staff or performance because missing on that kind of kick is just a miracle from God. For Memphis, because Memphis should not have won that game. They got ran all over that game. In that game by Tulsa, it is profoundly amazing that Memphis one survived that game, two that they got the ABC prime time against SMU, three that they're having College Game Day feature the city and the university. It is a great day to be a Memphis football fan, a Memphis City resident. It's just it's it's wonderful all around day, and it gets even better because I'm going to get into the Memphis Grizzlies in the next segment, and we're going to take a break here on the Mosier Show.
but it is unbelievable that Memphis is in this position right now, and I've already told you all about it. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful day to be a fan of the Memphis Tigers. We're going to go to break. I'm Aaron Mosier, and this is The Mosier Show. And we're back on the Mosier Show. I'm Aaron Mosier. Glad to be with you today as we're talking about Memphis sports today because it was a wacky and awesome weekend in Memphis sports. I'll definitely say that. Continuing on with the wackiness, it was the Memphis Grizzlies on Sunday night in a wild, wild finish, just as wild as... The missed kick against Memphis by the two lane, uh, by the uh, Tulsa kicker. What what a finish to that game. So Memphis was playing the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn Nets obviously have uh, improved their roster significantly by the addition of Kyrie Irving and uh, Kevin Durant, who of course is injured right now. Now the Memphis Grizzlies were leading for most of this game. But what's been a trend this season, just in the in the first three games the Memphis has played, it is a very young NBA season right now. In the three games that they've played, they've been a good team before halftime. I think, I don't know if they've led every single game that they played going into halftime, but... A lot of times it's it's unraveled for them. In the third and fourth quarters, they get they lose their offensive kind of identity and style that they had in the first half where they're finding Jonas Valanciunas inside or Jaron Jackson is taking guys off the dribble or John Morant is pushing the pace and getting inside. They've kind of lost their feel coming out of halftime, I think that's kind of a testament to that they're a young team. But against the the Nets, they had a fourth quarter option. And that's another piece of the puzzle for this Memphis Grizzlies team they're going to have to find. And that game on Sunday night, yesterday night, it was John Morant. John Morant had 17 points in the fourth quarter. And he had a heck of a duel with Kyrie Irving. I'll play, play, let me play some audio for you. Let me, give, let me give you some context. So the Grizzlies are down 118 to 120 in the fourth quarter. Not sure how much time was left at this point. But it, it was very late in the fourth quarter. And they needed a bucket. Bad. And I'll play this audio for you. Picked up by Dinwiddie. Ten seconds. Jump down the lane. Off the clips and in with seven seconds remaining. Tied at 120. Second slip. Irving for the lead tonight. 
So if you haven't seen the play, just go just go to NBA Twitter or to the Memphis Grizzlies Twitter page, and you can scroll down and you find it. John Morant, the Grizzlies are down by two, and they need a bucket, and you heard it. He beats Kyrie off the dribble and hits a, a flailing layup with seven seconds left. And then they come down the other side of the floor and to block Kyrie's step-back shot, John Morant was clutch. And here's something that I've been really impressed with with John Morant. And I think a lot of people already knew this about him. He is not afraid of the moment, and he's not afraid of the spotlight. Because he stepped up big time in that fourth quarter with 17 points. And he took he was the guy that they didn't have in the first two games. Chicago had their guy in the second game of the season for the Grizzlies because Zach Levine won the Chicago Bulls that game against the Grizzlies. And then the Miami Heat, they took over in that fourth quarter and just kind of cruised the rest of the way to beat the Grizzlies in game number one. But in game number three, it was John Morant that step up, stepped up, took the ball, and said, I'm going to score. Because sometimes younger players, they can be hesitant. They might, not, they might not feel the confidence. The game is sped up for them in the NBA. John Morant was not afraid, and he, he taxed the basket with a f- ferocity that you don't often see out of rookies. And he did that. But that wasn't the craziest portion of that game. So they go to overtime, tied at 120. Now, if, if I had to ask you, who, who on the Memphis team would you look for to hit a game winner when the Grizzlies are down by two? Who, who's, who's, who, who is the veteran on that team that's going to win that? Who's going to win the game for the Grizzlies? Now, I'm going to play this clip, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you find out. Jay Crowder, it's the game winner from the Grizzlies the day after the Tulsa kicker misses a 29-yard field goal. Jay Crowder hits a three for the win off of a pass from Ja Morant. Oh my goodness. I don't I don't think my heart can take that much that much intensity out of games from both of my favorite teams. You can't do that to me. And I think everybody in the city of Memphis can say that you can't do this to us because I'm going to have a heart palpitation from the excitement that these two teams are, are giving to the city. Jay Crowder hits a game-winning three, and the Grizzlies get their first win of the year. Taylor Jenkins gets his first win as a head coach. Unbelievable a weekend of sports in Memphis, to say the absolute least. And to cap that off with college game day, coming to Memphis, I mean, it can get better because we're going to have Memphis college basketball in a minute. 
But what a time to be a Memphis sports fan. After e- each franchise, each, each program, each franchise in Memphis has seemed to have a time period where it's just disappointing, disappointing to watch. I mean, the, the past two seasons of, of Memphis Grizzlies basketball because of poor administration choices, mismanagement has led to, and also injuries. Injuries definitely played a part in the Grizzlies' demise from the core four. But Memphis Grizzlies basketball was bad, and Memphis Tigers basketball was bad under Tubby. Not. Let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Memphis Tigers basketball was bad relative to the success that they had just had five five min five minutes ago, a decade ago. Under Tubby Smith, he did not meet expectations, and he seemed disinterested um, in really energizing the fan base. So Memphis Tigers basketball had a downturn. Memphis Grizzlies basketball was on a downturn. And not too long ago, Memphis football was bad. And to see all these pieces coming together to where these major programs and a franchise in the city are all they all the, they all have hope and they all have they're doing great things in the city. Now there's obviously there's a lot of sadness because the core four isn't anymore with the Grizzlies. But you just have to look at you have to look at the future. You have to move on. At some point you have to. And it is just great again to be a Memphis sports fan at this point in time. Because Memphis football is seven and one. They get college game today, they get to host SMU, eight no SMU. The Memphis Tigers basketball program has a number one recruiting class. We'll see. They haven't even played a, a, a non-exhibition game yet. So I'm not going to go get ahead of myself as far as the Memphis Tigers basketball program. But just the general excitement around sports in the city has been awesome to see. And that's what I'm going to say about the Memphis sports scene right now I'm going to go to break once again and the final segment we're going to talk a little bit college of football do some rapid fire of what happened over the weekend for week 9 and give you some light prep for week 10 which will surely be another great week of college football we'll be back after the break And we're back on the Mosier Show. I'm Aaron Mosier. And now I want to get into a little bit of some college football. After week nine was another exciting week. 
Kansas State with the big upset over Oklahoma after Oklahoma was set to just have their college football playoff spot set for them like a table. They get beat, and now they're thrown into the abyss of one-loss teams. Um, and now the Big 12 is kind of in limbo because they're wondering who is going to be our team that can make the college football playoff because that was Oklahoma. And they still got a shot, but you can't drop games to Kansas State. All props goes to Kansas State as Skylar Thompson ran all over the Oklahoma defense, the worst the Oklahoma defense has played this season. And their front seven could not stop the run. Oklahoma made a good run at the end because CeeDee Lamb had a long touchdown catch and run to the end zone. Jalen Hurts almost willed the Sooners back, and they almost had the onside kick that they needed, but it went off the knee of an Oklahoma Sooner player, and so Kansas State got the ball, and they were able to take their 48-41 to lead to victory, and Kansas State pulls the upset of the week. So, Oklahoma has lost, Georgia has lost, and Wisconsin lost against Illinois. So those are kind of your three major upsets. Now, Wisconsin, they're kind of looking like they weren't a... Definitely not looking like the same team they were when a lot of people were picking them as kind of Big Ten dark horses. Dark horses in quotations, of course. Because they had beaten Michigan by 30... by. 31, 34 to 3. So it looked like Wisconsin were were on their way to being the competitor to Ohio State. Well, Ohio State said, no, that's not going to happen. Ohio State said, no, we are the best team in the Big Ten, and it's not even close right now because they blew out Wisconsin 38 to 7, and Chase Young may be the best college football player right now. Because he had five tackles for loss and four sacks. Chase Young was lining up everywhere from linebacker to de- on the defensive line, blitzing. He was all, he was affecting almost every play for Wisconsin, and they had no answer for him. And so Ohio State can you, continues their run of dominance. And they still got to face Penn State um, and Michigan, of course. Now, Michigan. Uh, got back to winning because they dominated Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame, again, overrated as they... uh, Notre Dame now has two losses, so they will not be making the college football playoffs, and they will no longer uh, be a competitor as far as that's concerned. Michigan dominated them 45-13 in heavy rain in Ann Arbor, and it seemed like there was rain from the Great Lakes to the south. Just every game that was not in the Midwest or in the West, was having downpour rain, or just any rain, as a matter of fact, it was, it was like every game that I turned on, it was like Michigan's getting poured on, uh, Missouri and Kentucky's getting poured on, Auburn and LSU had rain. Like, it was, I guess that was the weather forecast for that day. But, uh, yeah, LSU outlasted Auburn 23-20. to Joe Burrow's toughness, man. He is a tough son of a gun because he got hit by Derrick Brown in the knee. 
and it did not look good because his knee got twisted, and he also got popped in that game too by a Auburn linebacker, and he popped right back up too. Joe Burrow is a tough, tough guy. Clyde Edwards, he layer for the LSU Tigers, had 26 carries, 136 yards, and he was really kind of the difference in that game for LSU as they defeated Auburn 23-20 to as Auburn just couldn't put up the offensive numbers. Now their defense did their absolute best. That is LSU's lowest point to, uh, total of the season, and that was somewhat expected just because Auburn's defense has been um, – been a driving factor of why they've they've won a lot of games this season, but it's just Bo Nix and the offenses. They can't they can't run. He can't find Bo Nix right now as a freshman is just. I was and any freshman is gonna have a tough time adjusting, and so they can't run deeper routes on third down, and so they're having to settle a lot, and that's in the end why they lost to LSU. Twenty to twenty three. So LSU continues on. They uh, leapfrog Alabama in the AP poll. So LSU is now number one. Alabama is number two. UCF blew out Temple 63-21. to Now Cincinnati benefits the most from that result because Cincinnati has already beaten UCF. So they have a tiebreaker over them. And now Temple is sitting there. They have several AAC losses at this point. UCF is one of them. They lost to SMU, so they've lost two weeks in a row. Um, so, yeah, Cincinnati benefits the most from that because it looks like right now, as long as UCF doesn't pass them as far as wins, if Cincinnati doesn't uh, drop a game or two at the end of the season, they still got to play Memphis. Um, so they could they could lose that game. But Cincinnati definitely benefits the most from from UCF winning against Temple. A complete surprise. Tennessee is apparently winning SEC games now because Tennessee defeated South Carolina 41-21 to after losing to Georgia State to begin their year. They've kind of... I, it is surprising to me because they didn't win any any SEC games. All right. one, they either won one game or none last year in the SEC and they've gotten two this year. So they've doubled their total at the very least. I'm not going to say congratulations to them because it's Tennessee football. Uh, <laughs> whatever. Good good, good for the volunteers. I'm glad their, their fans can wipe their tears for a few seconds. I'm not even going to get into the Missouri result because that's going to make me uh, frustrated, angry, um, confused, disappointed. Uh, a lot more adjectives could fulfill um, their purpose because Missouri has not, has let a lot of people, uh, their hype train has crashed off the tracks. It, it took a – it was going down the tracks, looking ahead. Re- Missouri fans were like, oh, this team is competitive. Look at them blow out South Carolina. Look at them d- 
defeat Ole Miss like that. And then they promptly travel to Nashville, and it's like the whole train imploded upon itself because whatever the case, whatever the case, losing to Vanderbilt, then you lose to Kentucky. I don't know how you expect to compete. One, in the SEC, but even at a conference like the Mountain West or the AAC, whatever conference you want to denigrate, you can't lose games to one, Vanderbilt, two, to Kentucky, who's playing a wide receiver at quarterback. I don't care what the weather is. You should not lose games to Vanderbilt or Kentucky. No excuse for those two losses. But I won't continue on because they get a bye week this week, and then they got to go play in Athens against the Georgia Bulldogs, and they probably will get blown out by 30 in primetime TV unless something absolutely magical happens in this bye week. Going into week 10, move on from week 9. Going into week 10, I've already talked to you about Memphis taking on the SMU Mustangs on Saturday, primetime TV, 6.30 p.m. on ABC. Currently, Memphis is favored by 6. That's probably having something to do with their home field advantage. Now, one key important key factor in that game is that uh, Reggie Roberson's health for SMU, uh, I think that's still kind of in limbo right now for the Mustangs. We'll see if he is ready to go. He's been a weapon for the Mustangs, the same way that James Prochet has been a weapon. Uh, Shane Bouchelle has been finding them often for the SMU offense. Now, Memphis is going to have to be ready for SMU's running game because they didn't look Memphis running defense did not look good against Tulsa and now they got to deal with Xavier Jones who is probably probably the most physical running back in the AAC right now while Patrick Taylor is still hurt who knows what Patrick Taylor's health is like for Memphis that has been a week-to-week thing uh, going on since the beginning of the year since the Ole Miss game when he last played so who knows what's going on uh, there. But yeah, at this point, Memphis is going to have to outscore SMU just based on how their defense played against Tulsa. I don't know. I mean, just two weeks ago, they held Tulane to 17, forced a lot of turnovers. So maybe that could happen again, but I, I think it's going to be a high-scoring game. I don't know what the the spread. So right now the spread, Memphis is is favored by six. That's the primetime game, but you also have Georgia and Florida. That rivalry will be the last last four seasons. The winner of that rivalry has won the SEC East and gone on to play in the SEC Championship, and that's likely to be the case once again. That's a 2.30 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Thursday night game this week, Baylor plays West Virginia. Good, A good game for uh, Baylor to kind of uh, get some more national prominence because they're undefeated. And they're they're the only uh the only undefeated team left in the Big Twelve. So are they are they the hope? Are they are they the hope for the Big Twelve to make the college football playoffs? I don't know. They still got up they got they host Oklahoma and Texas, but they gotta get through West Virginia first. And I'll be at seven o'clock on ESPN. Uh Virginia Tech faces Notre Dame. Both are five and two. 
Last time Virginia Tech played Notre Dame, it didn't go so well for the Hokies. Well, now they got to go play in South Bend, see if they fare any better, better, and if Justin Fuente can rally the troops. Talked about this on Saturday on KCOU Sports Saturday. Big games for Week 10 for the Pac-12. Utah travels to Washington to take on the Huskies, and Oregon goes to Los Angeles to take on the USC Trojans to test for the two pack leaders right now for the Pac-12. Oregon sits at number seven in AP poll. Utah sits at number nine. So if one of those, USC has already upset Utah at home, So that, and Oregon almost dropped the ball against Washington State, they survived that one. But yeah, you, Oregon and Utah... It'll, it'll be a great Pac-12 championship if they both can kind of run out the rest of their schedule and both be 11-1 and one heading into the Pac-12 championship. Boise State faces San Jose State as a nightcap game. See if Kansas can uh, pull a little bit more of their magic. If you saw the end of the Texas Tech-Kansas game, you should definitely go and do that if you have not. Because, because Texas Tech, Kansas had a kick to win, and Texas Tech blocked the kick, and then the player that picked up the football after it was blocked inadvertently decided to toss the football, and Kansas fell back on it. And then Kansas had a chance to re-kick, and the kicker made that field goal, and Kansas won the football game. That's another wild finish with kickers and kicks involved. So if Kansas State, we'll see if their heads get too big after their win against Oklahoma, but they're only favored by five and a half versus Kansas, um, which is what you have norm, haven't normally seen the past few seasons. Wake Forest hosts NC State. And uh, that's Cincinnati hosts East Carolina. Auburn host Ole Miss. That's your Week 10 Top 25 lineup. Somewhat of a lighter schedule week, but you still got still got Georgia, Florida, SMU, Memphis, and Oregon at USC, Utah at Washington. So there's still going to be good games to watch, as there always is in college football. That's about going to wrap it up here on the Mosier Show. I thank you for listening here on KCOU Sports. It's going to be a great weekend for Memphis and for the Memphis football program and for the university, and I am excited for it, and I hope you are as excited as I am. And I'm going to send it off. You can follow me on Twitter at The Mosier Show. And you can go check out all the art, all my articles on themosiershow.weebly.com. You can check that out as well. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope you have a wonderful evening and a wonderful week.